Hello and welcome to Rooted and Unwithered. I'm Cole Newton. And today we are continuing our series Ex Libris Ad Core, in which we discuss books in particular and reading in general. And as we have been doing, I have my wonderful daughter as a guest with us to introduce us a children's book that she loves. And so, Eowyn, are you here with us? Yes. All right. So you have another children's book for us today. Yes. Which one do you have this this week? Well, it's very like, like I think kids would really like it a lot. Oh, okay. So this it's is... called the Parables of Jesus. It's what oh. it's called. And is this and a new book? Yes, I recently got it. It was just laying in my couch. Oh, do you think mommy got it for you? Yeah. Yeah, it was a surprise to me too. I was glad mommy got it for you. Really cool. And it has a CD, too. Oh, it does? Yeah, so you can listen to it. Well, it had the digital download, but we put it on a CD for you. Yeah. And so how many times have you listened to it? Oh, wow. It's hard to tell. (laughs) A lot of Uh, times? Like, probably like six or even ten times. Oh, man. Okay. And so what what are some of your favorite parables? Let me show you. In this book. It is called The Lost Coin. The Lost Coin? And do you remember what the parable's about? It's about a coin. Uh-huh. And a woman who lost a coin. Okay. How many coins did she have? Ten. And she lost? And she lost one. Oh. And then she... What'd she do? Did she look for the coin? She sweeped her house and turned on a candle. Oh. So she found it. And what happened when she found the coin? And she said, what? She said to her neighbors and her friends, rejoice with me because I have found my lost mm-hmm. coin. The person who wrote this book, his name is Tyler Van Halteren. And he's the same who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. And yes. what else? Wasn't there another book that he did too? The the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Oh, you like that one too, right? Uh, not as much as the parables. Not as much as the parables? The parables is your favorite right now. And these are really pretty books, aren't they? Yes, they have a nice cover. They're very beautiful. They have very, and they have very realistic drawings. Yeah, they do. Okay, so you think... So you think kids should get this? The parables of Jesus? Yes, I do. Okay. Think. You think other kids will like it just as much as you do? Yeah. All right. It's very, very cool. Awesome. Well, there you have it. The parables of Jesus by Tyler Van Halteren. The subtitle is Short Stories, Timeless Truths. And it's one of everyone's favorite books right now. Thank you, Preciosa, for sharing with us. Will we Bye. see you, Will we see you again next week? Yes. Okay. All right. Bye, Preciosa. Bye. On Sunday evenings at our church, we have been going through a little booklet by Christopher Gordon called The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. And if you haven't had a chance to grab that yet, it is fantastic. It's a wonderful little resource, um, and especially with, um, with sexuality being such a hot topic today, 
being the, the, the front line of so many theological battles. Um, it's a wonderful resource to, to, to go through and to get a base, get a foundation. Um, and I'm particularly trying to use it on Sunday evenings as a good platform to get to discuss those topics, to get to um, hopefully go to scripture and show what we believe um, about things like homosexuality and transgenderism and pornography and marriage and the sexes, male and female, right? Um, And get to look at scripture, see what scripture has to say about that. So it's been a wonderful resource for launching in, jumping into that. And you can find the teachings that I've been doing there. I've been posting uh, at bcnewton.co on Wednesdays. And so uh, you can listen to those teachings or read my notes, whatever you'd like to do. But um, that's not the topic that I'm discussing today in Ex Libris at Core. But instead, um, in going through this series, it has led me back to one of the resources that I have uh, grabbed off my shelf, off my shelf and, and, and been diving into again, is a wonderful book called Re-Enchanting Humanity. A, Theolog- a Theology of Mankind by Owen Stratton. And I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, but so there's, as you go throughout life, there's going to be books that are kind of like, you know, shift your entire way of thinking, right? They're, they're landmark books in your life, right? So um, in college, one of those books for me was Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Uh, I think that much of how I view technology and how I view entertainment in particular has been shaped by uh, by Postman's view of entertainment. And so for, for better or for worse, uh, I, I think for the better, uh, and so we'll definitely, uh, that's definitely a, a, a plan to talk about that book at a, at another date. Uh, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, also, me and my wife grabbed a, a book called Toxic Childhood. Um, that was, uh, that's, a, oh, another great book that has kind of shaped, that has shaped how, how we parent and how we view parenting and how we want to parent our children. Um, and so Lord of the Rings. Um, that, that was a, a landmark book in my life. Uh, so I read it as, as in, as a high schooler, uh, loved that book, um, and, and was into Lord of the Rings, but then kind of let it go and just liked the idea. And then it wasn't until, uh, 2018 when I picked Lord of the Rings up again, my father was, my, my father-in-law was, uh, dying from cancer and, uh, and, and my wife uh, had to be over there so much with him that I was essentially a single dad for that season with our little one-year-old daughter at the time. And, uh, and, and I needed, I needed something to kind of slow down. And so Lord of the Rings became, uh, was a, was a, was a great, uh, was a, was a, a great story, um, to, to kind of escape from the world, but also, um, you know, as 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 Tolkien and Lewis and some of the great stories do, um, but also kind of give you strength for the real world, right? They're not just pure escapism. Um, and so, Lord of the Rings was a foundational book for me. Probably one of the books that's shaped my ministry and my understanding of the church and um, how I how I want my pastorate to be known by is. Um, is a, a little booklet by, by Paul Washer that was originally a, a 
about a two hour long sermon that he preached called 10 indictments against the modern church. Uh, and so that was, that was a, a formational book for me as well. Right. And, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, this book reenchanting humanity, uh, by Owen Stratton, that has, that was also kind of, um, a paradigmatic book for me, a, a foundational book. Um, and so the, the book is as, the subtitle says it's a theology of mankind. So this is a book that is all about anthropology. So he is, so it's a systematic study, uh, but he is, so he's, he's approaching the doctrines of the Bible. He's, he's studying the scriptures, right? But he's approaching it in a systematic fashion, right? Which means that he is, he is, he's approaching the scriptures topically. He wants to see what they, what, you know, he wants to study the scriptures through the lens of what the scriptures have to say about particular doctrines, right? And so this particular doctrine, he's not a, not a systematic theology that's covering the full range of doctrines that we can get from the scriptures, but instead uh, he's focusing squarely upon anthropology and for good reason. So as he argues, and as I believe is very much the case, um, that it is, that this is uh, the, the battleground of today, right? Um, so he he, he notes in the introduction, um, and so this is where I, if you, if you have listened to my first teaching that I've done in, um, in that study of the catechism, you'll notice that, that this, is, this is where I kind of got my formative views on this. He says, the culture rages on these points, but if the major issue of the 16th century was that of acceptance, how may a man be forgiven by God? And the major issue of the 20th century was that of authority, whether the Bible is inerrant. Then the major issue of our time is anthropology. Does the human person live in an ordered cosmos and have an appointed identity? Or does he make his own identity in a world without God? Beyond the finer points of the various debates we face today, this is the question of our age. So it is that that I offer up this material as biblical anthropology for the 21st century. Much of what I will sketch out in these pages would have been taken for granted by many Christians, but many Westerners in elementary non-salvific way have, have a fallen culture changes on a dime and ours has moved swiftly indeed on these matters, making the biblical doctrine of man quite distinct from a secular one, right? And so uh, in this book, that's exactly what he seeks out to do is uh, he's trying to address what exactly the Bible teaches about the doctrine of mankind, the doctrine of humanity. What does it mean to be human? And one of the things that's, uh, one of the reasons when I'm, when I'm presenting a particular book in uh, this podcast, one of the things that I like to do is read through the table of contents is because if you've ever read um, Mortimer Adler's book, How to Read a Book, you would know uh, that the table of contents is one of the places that uh, gets neglected far too often when it comes to books, right? Uh, so in that book, and that that would probably be a great topic in and of itself, how to read a book. But in his in his book, How to Read a Book, he talks about the we, that you should linger over the table of contents because the table of contents is giving you a roadmap to the book, right? And so, as I read the table of contents to you, you're I'm giving you the roadmap for what the for what is going to be discussed in this book. And so, I think it is interesting how he lays out this book. So, chapter one, he covers being made in God's image. Right, so so the introduction obviously he sets the question, 
you know, says that anthropology is the battleground for today. In chapter one, he discusses uh, the, the what is really the foundational issue is that is that we believe that we are made in the image of God, and that's fundamentally different from the secular and pagan world, right? Uh, that's why. That's why we have the very concept of human rights in the first place is because we believe that, huma- that, that humanity is made in God's image. Then chapter two, he deals with depravity. So what went wrong, right? Why, why are we not imaging God? Why are we not looking like God as we were supposed to? Chapter three, he discusses the nature, discusses work, right? That we were made to work. Work is not a product of the fall, but work has been broken by the fall. Chapter four, sexuality which again, major topic for us today, right? Chapter five, race and ethnicity, another big one. Chapter six, technology. And so this book was originally published in 2000, no, not 2017, 2019. There we go. It was originally published in 2019. And so, uh, and so if anything, that (laughs) <laughs> the issues that are addressed there in the technology chapter, they've just been heightened today by especially the the, the rise of AI and all of those things, right? Uh, chapter 7, he deals with the topic of justice. And then chapter 8, contingency. So how we are contingent upon God. We are not... Um, uh, we are not uncontingent beings like God is, right? God is... God is, is, is uh, God is a say, um, so so one of his one of his attributes is is his aseity that he is completely independent from anyone or anything else. He is sufficient in and of himself, but we are not. We are contingent upon God. And chapter nine is Christ, right? How Christ is remaking us into the image of God, and He's making us into the imago Christi, into into His image, conforming us into the image of Christ, restoring what was broken, right? And so this is a, a wonderful book that takes, that takes us on that journey through, um, through so many of the issues that are before us today. Um, and I think, again, our, I think he is, he is right on the money where he says that this is the topic, this is the theological battleground for today, right? And again, to quote from him in the introduction, and this is, this is wonderful too. So he, kind of gives the the premise and the heart of this book. So he says, this text is written to engage fellow theologians and to instruct seminarians, pastors, and those engaging these matters in the church and public square. It is a work of systematic theology, and I've written it in a conversation with a guild of fellow systematicians. It has been a joy to teach systematics for nearly a decade, and I hope this book will lend insight and strength to the church's doctrine of man. If we have assumed in past days, and this is this is good. We've assumed in past days that the church of Christ held a meaningful anthropology and that our children learned what they needed to know simply by ecclesial and cultural osmosis. Let us be clear that we may hold this assumption no longer. Now is not the time to play down our doctrine of mankind. Now is the time to teach it with confidence and with joy, seeking to be witnesses to fellow sinners and guides to all God's flock. Give my hearty amen to that, right? Um, So there was the day where we could assume right that that the culture would would present to us a a you know a relatively biblical doctrine of anthropology right that men are men women are women right but 
those days are behind us. Those days are gone. That's not where we are presently. And so, um, so today is the day to is the day to wrestle for those things uh, that we would wrestle against the the rising tides of culture, and that requires uh, that requires you know being being rooted and grounded in what we believe and systematically teaching our children. And that's why. We're going to things like that catechism on human sexuality, right? Uh, because if we don't teach our children what they are going to learn by cultural osmosis is going to be things that are, that are contrary to, to Scripture. Um, and so, uh, so a wonderful book. Um, I think that it is a, uh, a must-read. And uh, since I have been dipping back into it, it's been um, showing itself all over to me. Again, uh, just how just how how much this book has shaped me, and how much I have loved this book, and so um, I'm going to close out our this, our time in this discussion of this with um, an extended quotation, um, and this is um, towards the end of his chapter on sexuality, and so um, and I think that this is this is so good, uh, and so let me just read it, let you hear a little bit of what Stratton has to say. And um, so here it goes. Almost four decades ago, Francis Schaeffer commented on the church's response to the sexual revolution. He saw it whole, not in pieces. Quote, They have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally abortion. But they have not seen this as a, as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a, of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. End quote. Schaefer was right. The church has rarely put the pieces together in the areas of sexual ethics. We know about the sexual revolution, yes, and we even speak against given sins. But we still largely fail to see that our major worldview competitor is not an isolated transgression or even a political lobby. Our major worldview competitor is a system. We call this system neo-paganism. Neo-paganism paganism is the anti-wisdom of the serpent, which deconstructs ordered reality, the God-made world, and it reconstructs it with a new order, an anti-order ruled by the devil. In this anti-order, there is no creator, no divine design, no male or female, no script for sexuality, no God-designed family with a father, mother, and children, no need to protect and care for children at all, no savior, no lord, or theistic end to the cosmos, and no judge of evil. The theologian Peter Jones, and pause, his, uh, his book um, on, on neo-paganism, um, which I'll Put a link to it. I completely spaced on the name of that. Uh, oh, the other worldview. There's the title. The other worldview. Just a. It's a hard read, right? Because it, because it shows because it shows that we're essentially returning to the times of paganism. Uh, but 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 a but a, a good read and I think a necessary read. Okay. So he's talking about that. Peter Jones. So back to what Stratton is saying. So he calls the religion oneism. This contracts with what contrasts with what Jones calls two-ism. 
the biblical approach to reality in which God fundamentally stands above and apart from his creation, grounding all distinctions, judging all the earth, placing his image in the earth and under divine authority to live according to to divine design. One ism, by contrast, deduces, reduces the world to ash-gray sameness. There is no real distinctions. Everything is made of the same stuff. Matter is eternal, and it has this spark of divinity within it. Accordingly, we worship the creation. One-ism is the basis of nature worship. There's no category for sin because, because think of a circle. Everything is within the circle. Rocks, trees, good and evil, man and God. Everything is one. And so in that circle, we can do whatever we want to. We must thus invent gender and marriage, making each whatever we desire them to be while expressing tolerance for all religions and all lifestyles. A pagan person, per Jones's critique, distrusts hard and fast morality, downplays absolute truths, holds a self-generating view of existence and cosmological origins, vouches in some form of spirituality is a matter of internal alignment rather than external obscience views redemption as a product of self-actualization, i.e., I want to be my best self, and sees no higher purpose to death and the trajectory of the cosmos. He goes on and says, neo-paganism is the major competitor for the hearts and minds of Western people. The church finds itself in a decadent age. Some years ago, Jock Barzen noted the decadence of of the West, defining it as follows. When people accept futility, and absurd as normal, the culture is decadent. The term is not a slur, it's a technical label. Decadence and paganism go hand in hand. Today, the absurd grows increasingly normal. Resistance feels futile. Hope for real change seems in short supply. Sinners seem too far gone for the average church to reach. In such times as these, we need to go back. We need to remember the power of the gospel, the importance of biblical preaching, Our context feels particularly depraved, but if we will open our eyes to biblical experience, we will quickly see that the apostles in the early church faced tremendous fallenness. In their time, to the Corinthian Christians, a group lived among mind-bending sinfulness and idolatry. The apostle Paul communicated profoundly needed truth. Writing to a people burned over by the influence of ancient paganism and spiritualized hedonism and still struggling to detach themselves from their fleshly lives, the apostle Paul wrote these words. So 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males, no thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive peoples, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. These are preposterously beautiful words. In the Greek, the opening verse reads simply, such were some of you, as we could translate it. The Corinthian church, as we've already shown, faced terrific pressures in its struggle for spiritual conformity to Christ. A libertine culture filled with people drawn into the dregs of sexual immorality pulled at the fledgling church in Corinth, but the preaching of the gospel had its effect. The very people who lost their souls in pursuit of licentious pleasure were those whom Christ washed, sanctified, and justified through the Spirit's operation. 
The Apostle Paul gave the Corinthians no better news than this. In their fight for holiness, they did not struggle against sin as those enslaved to it. They had new names, new positions, new status before God, new natures, and they were, by divine grace, new creations. They had become captives to Christ, the one force in the cosmos stronger than the power of sin that had, rescu- and had who had rescued and redeemed them. They still felt the pull of the flesh, just as Christians from every sinful past will today. But, but the Corinthians, who left their wicked identities behind, they could not label themselves according to their old proclivities or fuse a new, a fallen self-conception with the regenerate one. There were no alcoholic Christians or male prostitute Christians or gay Christians or transgender Christians or thieving Christians in the church at Corinth. Paul taught this body, fighting for godliness as it was, that there was only one name that truly fit them now, Christian. And so it is today. Thank you so much for listening. For more resources for knowing and loving God's word, please visit bcnewton.co. And if you've found this helpful, please like, comment, or share with someone who you think might also find it helpful. Until next time, grace and peace.